0: Well, good morning. It is a pleasure, as always, to be with you. I would direct your attention on this final Lord's Day of Advent to Luke, chapter 2. We're going to consider verses 8 through 20. This is perhaps the most read section of Scripture throughout the Advent season. Usually on Christmas Eve, as a matter of fact, throughout the year, we seldom consider it unless perhaps it comes up in a read through the Bible in one year program. I've always myself enjoyed studying what we've considered historically to be Advent texts in the middle of the summer And the reason is, I tend to get more out of them because I am not sidelined by the sentimentality of the season. It's remarkable, given our emotions, how much we're blind to uh, when we're not really thinking things through. That's true with anything, but it can also be true of these great historic texts that teach us about the entrance of God Almighty into humanity in the person of his son, Yes, there's history here, but there's also great theology in Luke chapter 2. And I trust that as we examine these verses today, for the Holy Spirit's pleasure, that we would have a deeper understanding and appreciation of them. So let's now hear God's holy and inspired and inerrant word, Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, of which we've already sung today, to where Joseph and Mary have proceeded in response to the decree from Caesar for all the world to be registered. Mary has given birth to Jesus and has placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, and meanwhile in the same region. And we pick up with verse 8. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the true and living God stands forever. Let us now ask Him for His blessing upon the preaching of it. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege in your good providence of being able to assemble in this place on your day to worship you, to hear a word from you, and to sup with you in the knowledge that you will once again, as our covenant God, grant us that grace which is necessary for the living of our days. We thank you for the joy and the hope that we consider at this time of year as we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that in the coming moments that you would sanctify to us the truth of your word as we have read it, and that we may not merely be passive hearers, but that we may go forth with your great benediction as effectual doers for the glory of the Christ child, in whose name we do ask it. Amen. I've entitled today's message, The Response to the Incarnation Report, The Substance of the Good News. I think we can refer to this passage as a report, much as we could consider, for example, that segment in Luke 24... which the resurrection is told as the apostolic report of the reality of the risen Christ. Dr. Luke, as you all know, writes in very efficient language under the inspiration of the Spirit that articulates the details of all of that which is requisite for our growth in grace. And this is indeed a report... And it is one that begins at verse 1 and continues on through what we have read and even beyond in this second chapter as we have some events of the early occurrences in Jesus' life, his being presented at the temple, his having a couple of special visitors in Anna and Simeon, at whom we looked a year ago when I was here. And then that summation of all of these things in the 52nd verse of Luke chapter 2, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. All of this constitutes, if you will, a report. And the question then becomes, particularly with regard to those things that we have read, what is the response of that on the part of both heaven and earth as they join together to acclaim and to sing this Christ child's praises? Well, we have the reaction of the shepherds, we have the response of of the angel and the angelic hosts, and we have the reception in general of all who hear the good word that the shepherds proclaim once they are informed by the angels about this child. But pressing beyond that, we have the specific contemplations of one, yea, the very mother of God herself, and looking toward what it means to have those realities, as applied to the soul, bear fruit in the life. The purposes of God in the incarnation here are shown, and we see the doctrinal essence of the good news of verse 10. That's really the axis upon which the passage turns. I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. That's the angelic message to these startled shepherds. The evangel. We see the same strain running through Luke 2.10 that begins in the proto-evangel of Genesis 3.15, that indeed the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the good news. And it's interesting to note that in verse 17, when we read that the shepherds, as they Come into view of the manger and the fact that Mary and Joseph and the baby are there. They have found what they are looking for. And it says that they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. That's indirectly connected to the good news of great joy. And we know this because in the New Testament we find sayings, do we not? Now... We don't have the same word as you'll find in Paul, at least not in every instance. But you may recall that there are five distinct sayings in the pastoral epistles. Four, three in 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy and one in Titus, where Paul sets off and isolates a kind of special statement uh, that must be heard and must be applied by God's grace. I think, for example, of 1 Timothy 1.15, where he says, Here is a faithful or trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The New Testament, communicatively, whether it's Luke, whether it's Paul, all of those whom the Spirit inspires to write truth. It's presented in the various cultures, as sayings. And so they have taken the good news of great joy, and they are themselves communicating it as the saying concerning this child, entailing all that he is, and all that he will accomplish, and all that he will do. To the end, again, of this special one, Mary, storing these things up to herself, and meditating upon them, and as we'll see in a few moments, that action on her part will make her stand out, especially with regard to modeling what it means to be one who lays hold of the good news and who shows its very substance to a watching world. So the overarching theme here is that God incarnate, "...is announced to the lowest, that is, shepherds, to evoke their worship, and with that conjoined to angelic worship, to have the particulars of God's salvation revealed to them, that is, by the angels, and to have sinners trust in Him and keep their minds continually and hearts continually stayed upon Him for the fruit of saving faith to be seen in the world." And that entails both the shepherds and Mary. So that sets the stage for where we're going. I have three points that I would like to develop with you today in regard to these realities. The recipients of incarnation benefits, the record of incarnation benefits, and the results of incarnation benefits. Benefits. I think the term benefits is appropriate because that is language that we find in our doctrinal standards. We're consistently talking through our studies of God's word per his theological or his covenantal commitment to his people, how it is that there are blessings that are particularly there for his people and and we experience them every day. It's the blessings that lead the psalmist to say that he daily loads me with benefits. It's the fruit of sanctification. It's the privilege of being termed a son or a daughter of the living God in Christ and having been taken from the courthouse to his house, from the bar of justice to mercy itself, and to have a new station before him. And so that it is appropriate as we consider the incarnation... And God, as man, men to deliver, to borrow the words of the German hymnist Paul gerhardt that we look at these things as beneficial to us and appropriate them in like fashion. First of all, then, the recipients of incarnation benefits. We're looking here at the first two and a half verses, verses uh, 8 through 10a, and then verses 15 through 18, and verse 20 the recipients of incarnation benefits. Uh, More specifically, the question to ask is, what can we conclude about God's intentions towards sinful people by those to whom he first appears by virtue of the angelic announcement and development that draws them to see Jesus? If he is in, in the providence of God, a manger, if he is around that place where cattle are lowing, then who logically will be the first humans to visit if they are nearby? Shepherds. They're in the same region. The angel appears to them to announce the birth of Jesus, the angel's brilliance and holiness accompanied by the power and the glory of the Lord Himself as a messenger of the Lord. The shepherds are stunned, and they are made terribly afraid. They are, the end of verse 9 says, filled with great fear. Now you and I may think that at times in life we have been filled with fear, but when we have fear, when we come out the other side of the episode, it's usually not that good. Here we have the two extremes. We have the most afraid or startled or shaken at their core any humans could be, while at the same time, what's about to happen is they're going to be told, they're going to have announced to them the greatest news that they could ever hear. Oh, that we should all be filled with that kind of fear. It's wondrous. And it's no doubt unprecedented for them. They experience the Word in the flesh. The first time anyone will see... Jesus of whom we have record and will interact there in that area with Mary and Joseph and any of those who may be around. And we, as we consider how the angel said to them, Fear not, in verse 10a, that we begin to see the release of God's favor upon them and the effect that it had. And as we begin in verse 15 to read of their... Proceeding to that place, after the angels had left them, they talked with one another and concluded, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to them. So they're revealing that they understand that this messenger is from God. It is as if God has spoken to them. And they went with haste. They went without delay. And they spoke... "...of the things they had seen, making known thus saying, taking the good news of great joy to that place." And according to 18, people heard it, and they wondered about it. And when this was done, of course, they returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen." They were glorifying and praising. They were engaging in doxosontis. It's as if they were singing the doxology all the way back to the places that they lived in their regions. They were exalting, truly. We sing of choirs of angels singing in exaltation. That's really what they're doing here. Do you know the difference between exaltation and exaltation? When we exalt one... We ascribe to them their utter height. We acknowledge how high they are. The angels in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. We exalt God. We are acknowledging and submitting ourselves to Him being high above all and everything that He has created. When we exalt, the word exalt actually comes from a word that means to jump. Jump. When you exult, it is as if your soul, your heart, is leaping with joy and expressions of praise and ascriptions of glory. Now, we Presbyterians are too proper to jump, but think of these shepherds returning back to their particular respective locales, leaping in their souls and praising God for all that had been made known to them, all that they had heard and seen as it had been revealed. Now, this report and the details of it, and with regard particularly to who these men were, even though we don't know that much about them, we can come to conclude, I think, safely that they were devout men who were obviously very affected in themselves by what they had experienced here. Uh, They'd never been through anything like this before, would probably never go through anything like this again. And yet, something happens. We acknowledge that there is a devotion to the one whom has revealed these things to them. But they are, in their very calling, we must acknowledge, representative of a group within society who were not, in fact, held, as we know, in very high esteem. Shepherds were poor. Within legitimate God-honoring business, they were down at the very bottom, really, and there really could not have been a wider gap between the religious leaders in the Jewish community and Jewish shepherds, spiritually or socially. Any way you could slice that and categorize it. They're down very low. And sadly, there was some legitimate reason for this lowness of reputation. Shepherds were sometimes known as thieves. Maybe that's where we get the term sheep-stealing in modern ecclesiology for. I remember when I was in Scotland being told that there were actually, back in the day, Scottish shepherds who were just north of the English border, and they used to look with great desire at the larger and more attractive English sheep and wish that they had them, and not only so, sometimes work to make those English sheep eventually to be Scottish grazers. They were obviously unclean, we know that, and the clean didn't spend time with the unclean. There were all manner of things that divorced them from the general populace, and caused them to be seen as the riffraff, or the, the dregs of society. They were not known by virtue of many lies that had been told by countless numbers of them to have no trustworthiness. Their testimony held no weight in courts of law or in any other segment of culture, any other kind of communication. So why is it then that such devout men could have to suffer being categorized with those who were among the lowest. And I submit to you that it was very simply this, to prove that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when Jesus says that in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, he's not stating de facto that there are righteous people who don't need him. What, what do we know him to be saying? We know him to be saying that I come with my affection set upon those not who reject me in their hardness of heart, but to show my mercy towards those who are caught in the vortex of desperation before me as a holy and just God and are floundering in a sense of hopelessness before my Father. I come to rescue those. I I come to those who are low down in order to demonstrate that there is no other way that one can come to the Father but by me. Because you see, the lowest of the low don't have anything. They don't have a name. They don't have station. They don't have wealth. They don't have anything and jesus mercifully comes to them to demonstrate that no one can stand before god apart from what he alone is able to give you know that's a that's a blessing i have to say that the most joyous believers i have ever known in my life or read about or been told about are those who have Absolutely nothing that they could be tempted to substitute for the righteousness of Christ to be acceptable to God. You ever met a converted prostitute? You ever been in any prisons and done ministry and talked to people about some of the lives they've come out of? You'll notice that. They have more joy because they they don't have anything but stockpiled shame. They, They don't have a name. They don't have degrees. They don't have money. They don't have the admiration of peers. They don't have high station within the church. They don't have all of those things that so many of us have been, in a sense, cursed with because they block our own view to our need of the Christ we meet at this table to set us right with the God from whom we have estranged ourselves. Yes, these are the ones, like these shepherds, who could stand with us and could sing the hymn, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And their only question would be, what's the sweetest frame? What on earth is there that I can possibly hope in, but the blood of Christ. I believe that is in large measure why Christ has first appeared to the lowest. In order to show that there is no way, no means, by which any can ever be at one with God, at peace with God. Most of us, if we are honest, and if we really know our own hearts, as we look at our backgrounds as Americans, and and filled with all of the material blessings and the opportunities that we've had, most of us, if we are honest, would have to cop to being recovering Pharisees on some level. We really like to think highly of ourselves, and we're doing pretty well. We'll acknowledge that it's only by God's grace, but we often slip back into a mode sometime of self backpatting or affirming one another in things that are not of the Lord, things that are temporal. And I believe that as Jesus comes to the lowest, he wants to show those who see themselves as the highest, that there is no other way to be saved than by him these shepherds are glad they have the good news of great joy that's unsurpassed inner gladness that's what that word means there there's nothing more important to them than what they have been given in this Christ child and and they have a gladness of soul that that can't be matched and this same Jesus says in John 15, 11, I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. So my hope for myself and for anyone like me who struggles with recovering Phariseeism, that I would be able to see that not only does My sin certainly not help me before my God, but my own righteousness doesn't either. It stands and joins my sin in condemnation to me. And our prayer ought to be that as we move forward, as we minister to all of those whom God would be pleased to bring across our paths, that testimonies would be increasingly like that of David Dixon, the 17th century Scottish philosopher, who said of his conversion, I made a heap of my bad deeds, and I made a heap of my good deeds, and fled to Christ. William Guthrie, the 17th century English Puritan, said, God pronounces our righteousness Observe not our wickednesses, but our devotions, our charities, our costliness of sacrifices, our most applauded services to be filthy rags. Trust not, therefore, to them what man in his senses would think of going to court in rags and rags to wait upon a king, nor think that the righteousness of the cross was wrought to patch up these, or to supplement, as some say, what is either defective or altogether wanting in our personal merits, nor fancy like some who would embrace a Savior and yet keep their sins, that they may wear those rags beneath His righteousness away with them, not as dress which one may lay aside to be afterwards resumed, but cast them away. As the beggar who, having gotten better clothing, throws his rags into the nearest ditch and leaves them to decay, for you cannot otherwise be saved. Well, what are some of the particulars that the angel and those who eventually join him in the heavenly chorus are pleased to Reveal. This leads to my second point of the record of incarnation benefits, looking principally at verses 10b through 14. There are five that I want to quickly point out to you as we move through. First of all, in verse 11, the first component of the record of incarnation benefits is the fact that it is the fulfillment of prophecy. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, is born. You remember a year ago when I preached from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we noted is the most predictive of all of the prophetic verses that we could read of the specificities, not only of Jesus' coming, but what He would do. The prophet says, "...from Bethlehem Ephratah would come forth." one for the Lord who would be ruler in Israel, in whom she would dwell secure, who would be great to the ends of the earth, and he would be their peace. So what the angel proclaims here in an ecstatic state has been foretold centuries earlier, and the recipients of the good news can have assurance that it's particulars line up with the redemptive history and all that their forefathers were promised. You think about how remarkable it would have been to live at that time, to have been taught all the specifics about the fact that a Messiah is coming, and then to be in that age in which he appears. And to have everything so verifiable, that would excite you. That would make you exclaim the greatness of God. Well, second, also in verse 11, we have that he is the Savior. This is the only place, interestingly enough, in all three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus is referred to as the Savior. Therefore, it is of special significance in that the angel is stressing that Jesus is born this day in the city of David, ultimately to save his people from their sins. They define, as it were, or they, they affirm, they back up the reality of Matthew 1.21, which has already been read in this service, that his name shall be called Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. The announcement of this baby means nothing if he is not presented as the one who is going to save his people from their sins. Third, also in verse 11, We have the reference to Jesus as Christ the Lord. He is the one who saves. He is anointed to do so. He is the Messiah, and as such, He is Lord, kurios, over all. All people, indeed all things in creation are subject to Him. His, as Philippians 2 teaches us, is a name that is above every name and he has earned that name in his obedience in executing the will of his Father, he has been brought low, even unto death, and rises high again to that station where he will never again be subject to any. All kings, all presidents, all men of power in the world, all influencers, all movers and shakers are subject to this baby. They are his inferiors. And he has brought himself to no reputation. The good shepherd has emptied himself of all of his glory and become like an earthly shepherd in order to conquer death and to rise again and to govern and to reign over all with his truth and with his grace. Now fourth, in verse 12, we come to the humiliation of Christ. It's interesting how we have, in a sense, a pointing to his exaltation in verse 11. And then we come to his humiliation. I believe humiliation means more when exaltation is stressed first. This is the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid aside all of his privileges without in any way altering his nature or will, his nature or or anything about him that he intended to do divinely. And he comes into humanity and fulfills all that is required thereby, all that is required to do so, to meet the demands of humanity. And in order to do that, he must come into sin under its effect, being born in a low station and undergoing in his life ultimately the wrath of God, but also suffering all of the miseries of this life to rise victoriously, over it, The king who was high comes into demoralizing conditions and takes on sin, though being without sin himself, and wins the victory over it. And this will be a sign for you, verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And I want you to see, given what I've said about humiliation, that... These specifics are not told by the angel to the shepherds simply to demarcate the right baby in terms of what can be observed to the senses. There were obviously other infants that night in and around Bethlehem, but the distinction is the one swaddled, the one wrapped in specific cloths and placed in a trough out of which horses and cattle eat. There's only one of those. But what I want you to see here is this, and this will be a sign for you, and I actually prefer a definite article there, and this will be the sign for you. There is, in the swaddling cloths, and the placement in the manger, a signification for them of the utter humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not only telling them, this is what you need to look for and you found him, but when you find him, you need to understand that that condition in which you find him and the particulars of it set him off as a special one whom alone has come into the world to undergo the consequences of sin on behalf of his people and to give them eternal victory. You know, it strikes me on the day that we come to the Lord's table, how appropriate that is, that these shepherds had a signification and seal of the humiliation of Christ, and we have that exactly at this table. He has prescribed for us one, the sign, not any sign, not many signs, but the sign of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood, in order that as we find Him here, as we come to Him in contemplation of the saying of the good news of great joy, that, that the sign that gives us real hope is that he, he has undergone the curse of death in His body. That He has drank even the dregs of the cup of the covenant, the wrath of God, and He has shed His blood. That is the sign For us, continually, until he returns. That his humiliation is in favor of his own people. And then the fifth thing that we see is in verse 14. What's interesting about it is that the angel is joined now by other angels. So the fifth particular in the incarnation record is, involves a choir. And we can only speculate about that. Why have four distinct truths been offered up by one angel and suddenly there's a multitude? And and, and that must have been wondrous. Because when we think of a multitude of the angelic hosts, we, we can't think uh, Mormon tabernacle choir, uh, philharmonic orchestra. We have to think beyond anything in our minds. We have to, to think of in a sense, countless hosts of heaven joining one angel and praising God as this fifth and final dimension of the good news is stressed. And, and what is that? Well, I believe it to be an inductive flow from the beginning toward the general, most mysterious aspect of God's favor toward man. And that is very simply his unmerited grace, his favor, the fact that he desires to bring peace to his people because he desires to do it, because it's his mere good pleasure. Now, without getting too technical here, I want to stress something that leads me to this conclusion as the fifth emphasis on the record of the incarnation of Christ. The angels say, this massive heavenly choir declares in song, glory to God in the highest, that's exaltation, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Throughout the years... Uh, the translation of this verse has morphed into something more basic and simpler, probably the one we've seen on most Christmas cards or on any gift, perhaps, that we have received. Glory to God at the highest, it will say, and on earth, peace, comma, goodwill toward men. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We do experience in Jesus the good will of God toward us as sinners. But respectfully, that's not what this verse in the original says. We have the word eudokios, good pleasure, not good will. And in the Greek, it's known as an apposition. When you have an apposition grammatically, you have basically two elements side by side, where the latter one grants definition specifically to the former one. And that's what we have here with those and with whom He is pleased. The with whom He is pleased defines the those. Now, the text could read, where the Spirit pleased on earth, peace among those who believe. Peace among those who believe. Who trust in this child or things like that. But the emphasis is upon not what man does, but what God does. Peace on earth among those, that is, peace existing in all of those throughout the world who share in common the possession of the irene and the peace of God, they are those with whom he has pleasure. That's why I believe that there's a choir joining this one angel. Because that is the truth that ought to be celebrated beyond all others in the universe. That for some reason, that eternity will roll, that we will never understand, God loves the unlovable. And He makes them right with Himself. He grants peace as those with whom he is pleased, in whom he takes pleasure. And why does he have that pleasure? Because of all of these five realities. Because Jesus was foretold of old, is the Savior, is Lord over all, who was high and went low and is now high again. And he is bringing into his fold as the Good Shepherd Every last one upon whom the Trinity has set their eternal affection. Did you ever think, right in the midst of the Christmas story that we read every year, you would find the doctrine of God's sovereign choice? That is why all of heaven sings. William Hendrickson says this The angels are not glorying in man and his merits, but in God and his grace. When spelled out in full, the interpretation should be, and on earth, peace among men whom God has graciously chosen. Whew. We'd strap that on for Christmas. John Calvin, when it is in view here, it is not the reception of grace, but rather it is a declaration of the source of that peace announced by the angels that we should know to be gratuitous. Flowing forth of God's sheer loving kindness. What the world really needs in its darkness is the reality that the Christ child who has come is a God who is not chosen, but chooses. Who loves first and causes those who are his to love in response. And that even if my grip on him should somehow slip, his on me never will. That, that's, that's the essence of the good news of great joy. Right there. He holds me. No plot of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck his own from his hand. That's what they're singing about there. That's what is worth such high-powered praise such gusto, such jumping of the heart. This is the record of incarnation benefits. But finally, I want us to note mainly in verse 19, the results of incarnation benefits. Verse 18 tells us that all, whomever that is, heard the things the shepherd said and they wondered about them. So that's indicative of contemplations in general. But let us note the beloved mother of Jesus. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Even in this act, as well as in her life, we see something of the results of the outcome of incarnation benefits appropriated and applied by saving faith. The text says that she treasured up all these things. That is, she moved to protect them. It is as if she took them and put them into a treasure-like store chest, so as to guard them, and so as to always be in possession of them. And she pondered them in her heart. And this pondering, this word literally means to consider something to the end of proper conclusion and action. So she is treasuring up, she's engaging her mind and protecting these things and, and, and reigning them in and guarding them as special. And she is pondering, she's thinking within the laboratory of her own soul, expressed by uh, the depths of which is expressed by the heart. Our hearts are who we are. She's pondering. She's thinking. She's considering. She's wondering about what decisions she should make in light of them. Will the right conclusions be reached as I live out my life, And as I, as it were, look to the one whom I have borne to give me hope in the future. We don't know that much about Mary. She's been presented in films over the years and in certain writings as one, obviously. And I think scripture verifies this. Had a very close relationship with her beloved son. She no doubt cared for him. She was in great suffering as he died, as he, humanly speaking, entrusted her into the hands of the beloved disciple John for care in the future. You know, there's one account that we often miss that tells us what treasuring up and what pondering in the heart really looks like. John chapter 2. At the wedding feast in Cana, when the wine ran out. Here it was Jesus' mother who informed him that the wine had run out. We often miss that. And he says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. That sums up the life of one who treasures up and ponders. Do whatever He tells you. That's it. That's the proper response to the good news as it comes to us in the incarnation report. So that at the end of your life, by God's grace, you will be known as one who did whatever He told you to do and then went to be with Him. The, the flow will be that, that seamless Uh, leaving your existence here and going into His presence there, having been one who did what He told you to do. Dr. Shelton P. Sanford addressed the graduating class of Reformed Theological Seminary in 1993. I was privileged to be present there, though still a seminary student. And he looked at those graduates and he said, Meet with Jesus early and do what He tells you to do. I've never forgotten that. Now, He's not talking about some mystical experience where He hears a voice or a direction, but He's saying fellowship with the One you serve and has called you into ministry. And as His Spirit works in your heart and applies truth to it, obey it. Do whatever He tells you to do. That was Mary. Now, when we do whatever He tells us to do, it won't be glamorous. It won't mean station. But you'll be moving in a shepherd-like direction. I have to warn you. And there won't be glory, and there won't be accolades, and there won't be stuff. But it'll simply be a life of service so that when you are gone, you will be known for the humility that can only be brought about through vital union with one who was humiliated. You just serve. You do what he tells you to do, and then you go to be with Jesus. I was so blessed recently when I read an article about the passing of one of the fathers of the Presbyterian Church in America, the Reverend James Anderson Smith. I had the privilege of meeting Reverend Smith back in 1999, when in the one only time I ever served as a floor clerk at the General Assembly, he was the head floor clerk for 30 years. And you had to get there early, and he he went over all the ushering guidelines and how the elements for the Lord's Supper were going to be distributed, and and how to get to a station to take a commission or paperwork if there was someone on the floor who needed something. That's a thankless job. But I remember this slight, short, unimpressively appearing man with hearing aids directing all of this. And then I read his obituary, and not only was he a floor clerk for that long... But he was in the Bible Presbyterian Church. He was in the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod when it was absorbed by the PCA in 1982, and he pastored the same church for 50 years. He was the stated clerk of New Jersey Presbytery for almost 50 years. Now, floor clerking is a thankless job. I don't know, but I've been told that being the stated clerk of a presbytery is a labor of love. That's a time release joke. You'll get that on the way home. But this man did all these things for decades, and nobody hardly knew who he was. And his fellow parliamentarian and floor clerk, ruling elder Rick Springer of New Jersey Presbytery, wrote this of Reverend James Anderson Smith when he died. All who knew Jim were blessed by his energetic and humble spirit. He never complained about his personal hardships or difficulties in ministry. He simply served his Savior in whatever task he was called to often working quietly behind the scenes, seeking no acknowledgement and no credit. Jim had to deal with severe hearing loss, but he accepted this as from the hand of his loving God. He was a true churchman, and those who served with him in the local church, presbytery, and general assembly are all richer for the example this humble servant of Christ Preached by his daily walk with his Savior. He did what his Lord commanded. And then on November 22nd, 2021, at the age of 94, went to be with him. That, my friends, is what treasuring up and pondering in the heart the truth of God, revealed to these shepherds and celebrated by heaven and earth together, will produce. And if you don't really want that, then there's no need to appropriate the benefits of the incarnation to your soul. But if you desire to be delivered from the wrath to come and to know that, unparalleled inner gladness then that's what you'll do you'll treasure up these things and ponder them in the heart and you will say do whatever he tells you to do and that will glorify him and then you will go to be with him Let us contemplate those things by God's grace for Christmas. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider all that You have done and continue to do on our behalf as the One who has loved us and in the person of Your Son, given His life for ours, that we may stand before You and know what it means that we are among those in whom You take pleasure, the pleasure of Your Son, that, that You look upon Him and You deal with us as You are pleased with Him because He is the Savior, He is the Lord of all. He is the humiliated One, now exalted, high in heaven on Your right hand, Father, interceding for us. Oh, may the fruit of all of that place us where it can be said with truth that we treasure You, we ponder Your truths, and we yield to You, and we say unequivocally, whatever You tell us, We will do, and we will do it faithfully at whatever cost. And we will be found serving until we are taken to be with you. Bless us as we come to your table now and comfort us and assure us of your love and of your power, and that with thee all things are possible Amen.